When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A warning, folks. There are a couple of graphic sexual descriptions in this episode that are, believe it or not, an integral part to the story. Even the judge who oversaw the trial banned observers under the age of 18. Since we are not shying away from the content, in a rare departure from our usual format, we do not recommend this episode for younger listeners. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. It's time to throw another log on the fire, campers. We've got a new story for you. I'm your co-host, Stevie Yoder, and with me, as always, is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Acker Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. For years, nobody knew where his grave was. Oh, it was somewhere in Columbus's Green Lawn Cemetery, or so the local folks had been told, but its exact location was kept secret for decades. And even years later, when a tombstone was added, his last name was omitted. God only knows what would have happened to it in those weeks, months, even years after his execution in the Ohio Penitentiary's famous Old Sparky. But eventually, an exploration group found and published the grave's location. We'll share their revelation at the end of this episode, since it's been 92 years since he was laid to rest there, and we trust that emotions have dulled since then. Tonight, we're sharing the story of Dr. James Snook, an Olympic gold medalist in shooting, a professor of veterinary medicine at Ohio State University, a celebrated horse surgeon, a respected husband, a beloved father, and a killer who ended the life of a student he was having an affair with. There's still mystery in this story, and we'll get to that at the end. As always, let's start at the beginning. James Howard Snook was born September the 17th, 1879, to Albert and Mary Snook in South Lebanon. That's a city in southwestern Ohio's Warren County. There are 6,300 souls living there today, 
but in James' first year, the U.S. Census counted him as one of just 42 residents. Seven years later, a sister Bertha joined the family. The elder Snooks remained in South Lebanon for the rest of their lives, but James had big plans for his future, and a small town would not do. After high school graduation, James entered the Ohio State Veterinary School, where he was among the founding fathers of the Alpha Chapter of Alpha Psi Fraternity. His name is on the charter. He graduated with his degree in veterinary medicine in 1908, and he developed his specialty in horse surgery. He even invented a surgical instrument called the snook hook, which is still used today for spaying animals. As World War I came to an end, James took up teaching. He did a brief stint at Cornell University in New York, then returned to his roots. He became a professor at OSU's College of Veterinary Medicine and eventually became head of the department. James was also an expert marksman. In 1920, he made the U.S. Olympic pistol team, traveled to the 1920 Games in Antwerp, Belgium, and came home with two gold medals for team wins in the military pistol and the free pistol competitions. He was the first Ohio State alumnus to win an Olympic gold. In 1922, James married Helen Marple, and they had a daughter and settled into a house on East 10th Avenue near the university campus. He joined the Scioto Country Club and moved in upper-class circles. James had a reputation as a taciturn man, somewhat reclusive. His colleagues later would remark that they hadn't really known him well. But he certainly didn't seem to be the kind of man who would throw it all away for a woman half his age. That woman was Theora Kathleen Hicks. Theora Hicks was the only child of Joanna and Melvin Hicks, born in New York, mostly raised in Connecticut, though later her dad moved about teaching in various medical colleges. At the time of our story, her parents are living in Bradenton, Florida. Theorda had picked Ohio State for her college experience, and her parents approved, believing Columbus was one of the safest cities in the world. And so Theora moved there alone. She earned her undergraduate degree in 1927, then immediately enrolled in the medical college. People saw her as a studious girl. She loved to read. And she was an athletic type who enjoyed swimming, horseback riding, tennis, and walking. Her parents helped pay her tuition and board, but she did her share by working as a stenographer for OSU's veterinary department. She was also an occasional babysitter for the Jeffers family. As a graduate student, she lived on Neal Avenue on the south edge of campus with two sisters, Alice and Beatrice Bustin. When pressed on the topic, the Bustin sisters would later say they knew Theora had a date from time to time, but largely she seemed completely uninterested in men. Boy, were they wrong. 
the affair between James and Theora began in June of 1926, when Theora was 21 and James 46. A summer thunderstorm had stranded Theora and another secretary at the school, so James offered to drive them to their dorm rooms at Mack Hall. The ride home became a frequent thing for Theora, and three weeks later, they were lovers. They met in various locations around Columbus. Sometimes they took long drives into the countryside in James' Model A Ford Coupe. Later in their relationship, they had a steady spot. James rented a rooming house at 24 Hubbard Avenue, north of downtown Columbus, and boldly in his own name. And they would meet in that love nest two to three times a week, usually between 6 and 9 p.m. The affair was a poorly kept secret. The veterinary college was a small, close-knit community, It was also obvious to James' colleagues that he'd become distracted. The dean of the college thought James' work was suffering. James wasn't Theora's only lover. During at least part of their affair, she was also seeing a man named Marion Myers, a 30-something instructor in the university's horticulture department. James knew it. As a matter of fact, Theora would often compare the two, telling James that Marion's greater penis size and lovemaking skill gave her more pleasure. She would encourage James to learn more exciting sexual practices. She suggested several books, including The Art of Love, written by a physician. James agreed to study up. He read the books and made an effort to be more adventurous in bed. James might have had to accept that he and Theora weren't exclusive, but he didn't have to like it. He got back at Marion Myers once, placing seven tacks in his car tire one evening. He may or may have not known this, but Myers had proposed marriage to Theora. She had turned him down, saying she wanted to finish school. Theora liked to use drugs, like marijuana, cocaine, barbitol, and an aphrodisiac known as Spanish fly. Sometimes James joined her. According to James, Theora, she was five foot seven, 145 pounds, was a physically aggressive woman and even had a slight sadomasochistic bent. She called the shots in bed and he complied. Early in their relationship, when Theora was still living in the dorms, someone had broken into her room. It frightened her. So James bought her a Remington Derringer, and he took her to the New York Central Rifle Range on Fisher Road to teach her how to use it. James was a member of the Columbus Revolver Club, and they frequently met there. As a matter of fact, It was at that shooting range where Theora's body was found in the early summer of 1929. It was three years almost to the day when she had accepted that first ride home. Around noon on Friday, June the 14th, a pair of friends, 15-year-old Paul Crumlauf and 16-year-old Milton Miller, 
drove Miller's Whippet 4 sedan to the rifle range. They wanted to practice shooting, but something in the tall weeds about a hundred feet beyond the east target caught their attention. They moved closer, then reeled in horror. It was a woman. She appeared to be mutilated. She was face down, wearing a brown dress, white hose, black shoes. Her brown hair couldn't conceal a head full of wounds, though a heavy shower from the night before had washed most of the blood into the ground around her. Her throat had been slashed. Her back had been scored multiple times with a knife. A bloody handkerchief was clutched in her right hand. A man's wristwatch on her wrist was stopped at exactly 10 o'clock. The boys hurried to a police station on Sullivan Avenue to report their grisly discovery. Franklin County Coroner Joseph Murphy estimated the girl had been dead about 18 hours, probably just minutes before the rain had started at 10.22 the previous night. The victim had put up a fight. Her dress had been slashed to ribbons by the knife. Maybe she was trying to escape, he figured. There were 16 fractures to her skull, Several of them left imprints of a ball-peen hammer. One blow had driven particles of bone into her brain, but the cause of death was that five-inch deep slice to the neck, perfectly centered over her jugular vein and carotid artery. Tire tracks in the field showed where a car had entered from the south and left to the north. Because of the rain, Police weren't entirely sure if she had been killed there or killed elsewhere and moved there. They were also confused about a motive. Her purse wasn't on the scene, but if robbery was the purpose, why hadn't the killer taken the watch? As for sexual assault, she was fully dressed. They had another mystery to solve. Who was she? There was no ID on her and the swelling of her bruised face had contorted her features. While detectives were still trying to figure out who she was, the station received a call from two sisters who were looking for a missing roommate. It was 4.45 p.m., nearly five hours after that body had been found. Beatrice Buston was a technician in the university's medical laboratory, Alice Buston was a second-year student in the medical college. The woman who lived with them had left their apartment the previous night around 7 p.m. She said she was on her way to be trained for a new job she was taking that summer. She was going to work as an operator for the university hospital switchboard. As soon as the sisters started describing her, her long brown hair, her father's wristwatch, which she always wore, the records clerk who took the call suspected police had already found their missing friend. She told the Buston sisters, head on over to the morgue. At 5.30 p.m., they identified the murder victim as Theora Hicks. The sisters told police they really didn't know all that much about their roommate, She did not confide in them about her life or her habits. 
If she had any love interests, she had never mentioned it. She left the apartment every evening, but they assumed it was because she loved walking. When Theora didn't come home last night, they wondered if she had stayed with the Jeffers, that family she babysat for. But when people started calling because she missed appointments on Friday, they knew it was time to alert someone. They found her derringer and a box of cartridges in a dresser drawer. The Buston sisters had never seen it before. Police also confirmed she usually carried a brown purse with a green clasp, and it was still missing. Investigators tried recreating her day, and they learned Theora didn't make it to that training session for that switchboard job. The woman who trained her said Theora was very quiet and distracted, and when she left, she had mentioned she was on her way to a date. The operator turned out to be the last person, besides Theora's killer, to see her alive. Within just a day, police had two good suspects in mind. They'd been told about Theora having dated Marion Myers. Detectives sought him out, but they had trouble finding him, His work in OSU's horticulture department involved research on corn borers, and that required him splitting his time between Columbus, Worcester, and Lucas County. But friends told police he hadn't dated Theora in over a year. Besides, he was engaged to another girl. Myers learned of Theora's murder and returned to Columbus. There, police questioned him but his alibi turned out to be airtight. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Then there was the second suspect, a man without a name. It came as a tip from a caller who had seen Theora out and about with him. He was middle-aged, wore horn-rimmed glasses, and drove a new dark blue Ford coupe. And so the Ohio State Journal printed the description of the unknown man in its next edition and told readers, if you know of such a man, you may hasten the solution of one of the most gruesome crimes in the history of Columbus. Within hours, police learned the name of Dr. James Howard Snook. Investigators hurried to the Snook home on West 10th Avenue. James greeted them calmly on his front porch. His right hand was bandaged. He told them a wrench had slipped when he was working on his car Wednesday. Then he agreed to follow them to police headquarters for a formal interview. There he described an innocent relationship with Theora, a student who needed his mentorship. 
He said he had partly financed the Aura's way through college and that he had plans to employ her as a stenographer in his office until she'd taken the switchboard job. He had last seen her on campus the night before her murder. Detectives found James cool, iron-nerved, unflinching, and apparently truthful. It couldn't be him, they thought. Twice in the past week, he had been at that shooting range, including just three days earlier when his club had taken on the Columbus Police Department in a friendly pistol competition. No way would this guy kill his lover and leave her in a place so closely connected to him. And yet, within 48 hours, James' story started to fall apart. The first brick fell when Mrs. Margaret Smalley showed up at the police station. She was the landlord of the Love Nest on Hubbard Avenue. She saw Theora's photo in the paper and knew her as Mrs. Snook. James Howard Snook had rented that room in her building under his own name and identified that woman as his wife. It was a single, meagerly furnished room in the annex of her apartment house. The husband had told her they wouldn't be there often, that they were from Newark, and both sold salt for a living. They just needed a local place to stay when they were in town for demonstrations. After Mrs. Smalley left the station, James Snook had no option but to admit the affair. After that, a little forensic work revealed that James had left a trail of evidence a mile wide. At his home, they found clothing with blood on them, later determined to be Theora's blood type. The same blood was found in his car. James had paid a man to clean his car thoroughly the day after the murder, but the job wasn't thorough enough. The cleaner missed an area where Theora's hand had been slammed in the car door. And then there were the murder weapons. Police found both the hammer and the pocket knife used to kill Theora. The tire tracks at the scene matched the treads on his car. And a taxi driver came forward to say he had driven Theora to the vicinity of the rifle range earlier that evening. She smoked several of his cigarettes, talking about how she was waiting for a man in a coupe to come join her, and that when the man didn't show up, he took her back to High Street. The next police talk with Dr. Snook wasn't an interview. It was an interrogation. It lasted 19 hours, and at one point, later revealed and admitted, a city prosecutor named Jack Chester slapped James repeatedly across the face, demanding his confession. And they got one. On June the 21st, eight days after Theora's murder and after James was returned to the county jail after that intense questioning, he told Police Chief Harry French what happened between he and Theora that night. Here's James' story, told to Chief French, and from what he said when he took the stand at his own trial. 
The evening of June the 13th started innocently enough. James said he picked Theora up on High Street sometime after that taxi driver had dropped her off, and they drove to the Scioto Country Club. She didn't want to go back to their love nest that night. She wanted to have sex in the car. He thought the property of the club would suffice, but Theora said the spot was unsuitable. She wanted to go someplace where she could scream. So James took her a short distance further to the New York Central shooting range. The car was small. The sex wasn't good. They both voiced their disappointment. But James had run out of time. He told Theora he had to go home to get ready for a family trip. He was taking his wife and daughter to visit his mom in South Lebanon. Theora's anger flashed at that. She threatened to kill his wife and his daughter to get them out of his life once and for all. Then she got aggressive. She opened his trousers and went down on him. But then she started biting his penis and pulling at his genitals so hard he couldn't tolerate the pain. Nor could he find a way to extricate her from his groin. He said he desperately reached into the back seat where he had a kit that contained a ball-peen hammer. He felt the hammer, brought it forward, and hit her in the head. At that, Theora yelled, Damn you! I will kill you too! She jumped out of the car, her purse in hand, and when she began to open her purse, James said he was afraid she was reaching for the pistol he had bought her. He went after her, striking her in the head several more times until she fell to the ground. She was alive, but in pain and moaning. He figured the damage he'd done with the hammer was irreversible. He had a pocket knife in his pants. He pulled it out and cut her throat. He said he didn't want to see her suffer. At his trial, he said he couldn't remember much of what he'd done. He couldn't explain those multiple slashes to her back with a knife. Afterward, James took her purse, opened it, and realized she never had the gun. So he took the purse with him as he left the scene and tossed it from the quarry bridge into the Scioto River. Officials later dragged the river, but could never find it. Dr. James Snook's trial began on July the 29th in a Columbus courtroom. It was a national sensation. It had all the necessary elements, a respected professor, a beautiful co-ed who reporters called the girl with the Mona Lisa smile, a gruesome death, and lots of sex. With James going into explicit detail about their affair, how she had pushed him beyond the bounds of conventional sex, and how she had taught him fellatio for the first time. As I said at the start of the episode, Judge Henry Scarlett banned anyone under the age of 18 from observing the testimony. And it was so graphic, newspapers who printed the transcripts of the trial edited out all of the lurid details. But a court stenographer compiled an uncensored account and published it later that summer. Plenty of folks heard it in person as well. 
the line for the 200 available seats in the courtroom's galley formed early, sometimes as early as three in the morning. Theora's Hicks' parents had come up from Florida, and they sat in the front row every day. A long table was put up to accommodate 40 members of the press who came from all over the country. The prosecutor was Jack Chester, that guy who had slapped James Snook during the police interrogation. James' defense was John Seidel, a former Columbus municipal judge, and E.O. Ricketts. Before the trial, Seidel made the unfortunate mistake of telling the press, if Dr. Snook killed that girl, I helped him do it. Of course, later, that comment came back to haunt him when James decided to admit the killing but claimed self-defense. The jury was filled with farmers, a blacksmith, and one woman. The trial lasted three weeks, after which they retired to deliberate. They took just 28 minutes to find him guilty of first-degree murder. A week later, Judge Scarlett sentenced him to die in the state's electric chair. The time and date changed a couple of times, but it was eventually set for 7.10 p.m., February the 28th, 1930. James appealed all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, arguing his confession had been given under duress and trying to get a new trial or, at the very least, a verdict reduced to something other than first degree. But the effort failed. On February the 28th, James woke at 9.15 a.m. when they came to tell him his wife was there for her final visit. She had remained at his side through it all. He bathed and dressed in a blue, unpressed suit, the warden having denied his request to wear a tuxedo. He complained when the barber arrived late to shave him. He distributed a few possessions, giving his heavy maroon sweater to a cellmate. Then he had a final meal of lamb chops and chicken, seated with his wife, a cousin, a close friend, a minister, and the prison chaplain. They laughed and ate heartily and didn't discuss a word of what was coming. As the hour neared, he kissed his wife goodbye. Then he was walked to the death house, a small red brick building at the southeast corner of the prison yard. While Helen Snook waited in the warden's office and hundreds of people assembled outside the prison to celebrate the moment, James Snook was put to death at 7.10 p.m. Theora's father, Melvin Hicks, was in an elevator on the way to his Columbus attorney's office when the switch was flipped. The attorney greeted him as he stepped into the office with the news it's all over, Melvin. Melvin Hicks responded, Now I can breathe easier. The air seems cleaner to me. Before dawn, Reverend Isaac Miller of the King Avenue Methodist Church conducted a small private burial before an unmarked grave at Greenlawn Cemetery. James Snook was in the ground before the sun rose. There initially was no headstone. The family and the cemetery feared a marker would invite vandals. 
Later, without fanfare, a gravestone was added, with his last name removed. And so Snook's grave was kept a secret for the better part of 75 years. In 2005, after much research by a grassroots group called the Ohio Exploration Society, it was discovered. Since the cat's been out of the bag for 20 years, we really don't have any qualms about sharing it here. It's in Section 87 of the Massive Cemetery, and the marker is a simple rectangular stone that reads James Howard, 1879 to 1930. You can find photos of it and read more about the Society's work to find it at their website, ohioexploration.com. Now, I promised you there was a mystery with this story, and here it is. After Snook's execution, the warden of the Ohio Penitentiary, Preston Thomas, claimed that James had confessed to him that the murder had been premeditated all along, that his entire testimony during the trial was a lie. He said Theora's tantrums and fits of anger had grown more frequent and increasingly violent, that she had started calling him at work repeatedly and even rapping on his office window. When she was particularly volatile, she would threaten to expose the affair and ruin him. He said he decided he'd had enough, so he placed the hammer and the knife in the car so they would be close if the opportunity presented itself. It did that night. When Theora told him she didn't want to go to their love nest on Hubbard, she would rather take a drive to the country. After he killed her, he went into overkill so it would look like a maniac had attacked her. That would have explained the extra slashes on her back. The warden said James told him Theora's murder was, quote, the logical and inevitable conclusion to a convenient arrangement. The warden said he asked the doctor how he'd kept his cool after the killing. He said Snook told him it was such a relief to have it over and that he was completely surprised that he was even suspected of the crime. He also said he did regret making up the whole story, but only because in the end, he believed the story he'd made up had done him more harm than good and probably contributed to the severity of the verdict. So was the warden telling the truth? There are actually plenty of people that did not believe him. They thought he'd fabricated the entire death day confession, though his motive for doing so was unknown. And there's no way to know. That confession was published by the Cleveland Plain Dealer and the Columbus Dispatch two days after Snook's death. So there was no proof either way. It certainly did complicate the entire story. After all, the only real knowledge we have of Theora's personality inside that relationship came from the man who killed her. And now, if he lied about it, for all we know, Theora was a semi-conservative girl, in love and simply wanting to marry her paramour. Let's throw in a little second mystery here, because some people say Dr. James Snook is now a ghost. 
people have claimed to see a figure wandering Greenlawn, a balding, middle-aged man with a long, narrow face and perfectly round spectacles. They say it looks an awful lot like James. And for those who like the macabre, there's this. Apparently, Snook's 1928 Model A dark blue Ford, the scene of the crime, still exists. I found stories from a couple of decades ago when it was making the rounds at antique auto shows in Columbus. Not sure where it is now, but there are people on car forums who believe it is still owned by a car collector in the Columbus area. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.